Well, let's go ahead and dive in. We're in the book of Joel today. We've been digging all around some of these Old Testament minor prophets from, we haven't even got to Zephaniah. I keep trying to get to Zephaniah each week and I keep getting sidetracked, but we're in Joel today in chapter 2. My text has us starting at 17, but I'm going to throw a curveball to those in the back. If you can, let's, let's try to pull all the way to 13, um, or 12, I'm sorry. Go to 12, Joel chapter 2, verse 12. Sorry for the quick last-minute change there. If you have your Bibles open to Joel 2, chapter 2, verse 12. Yet even now, declares the Lord... Return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people and consecrate the congregation, boy, there's a whole lot of, whole lot going on there. Blow the trumpet, we're going to go back to 15. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, I always just have to mention we do that really well. I do that so you'll laugh, especially, you know, when they're distracting. Even the nursing infants, a few of those around, let the bridegroom leave his room in the bride, her chamber. Now we're at verse 17 where we were going to start actually today. 17, and we're going to go a little bit further all the way to, oh, it's 19. Y'all have got that. Verse 17, Joel 2. Between the porch and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? You know, why should anybody have to say about any of us, where is their God? Verse 18, then the Lord became jealous for his land. We, we got there last week, the Lord's jealous for his people. The Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. And the Lord answered and said to his people, behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. 
And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. Hallelujah. Lord, let us just come before you today, Lord, between the porch and the altar, God, with weeping and rending of hearts before you, God. Holy Spirit, that you would come and just speak to each one of us today, Lord. Lord, your gentle, loving, convicting, guiding voice to each one of us here today, Lord. Lord, we just say be glorified. We ask that you would be glorified. In the mighty name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. All these minor prophets are obviously prophesying. And you think that's something to be taken for granted. I was just actually, my wife and I just had a weird moment this morning on a Sunday morning. She was actually not doing something for a minute. And for whatever reason, I wasn't doing final prep on, a, on my message this morning. And we were talking. And weird Sunday morning. It, it only lasted for about seven minutes. <laughs> seven whatever kids and everything else. And I was like, I was reading in a part, I was in Jeremiah, and it was talking about how the prophets are just continually prophesying treachery and trickery and, and all these things, tricking the people, that you can live a certain way, and yet the blessing of the Lord is still going to get come and get poured out in your life. And of course, Jeremiah's message was something that was, was something completely different. But here in Joel and many of these kind of back of the Old Testament minor prophets, they're, they're talking about from Zechariah to Zephaniah to Joel to Haggai, all these guys talking and, and proclaiming a, a moving of God's Spirit, calling forth God's people, a rending of people's hearts, a returning unto the Lord, fortunes, things that locusts have eaten, which means things that we've lost in our life, whether, whether lost by un predictable circumstances are lost from seasons of, of backsliding and, and just not making good decisions in our walk with God. And all these books are calling forth, Lord, let your rain come, let your fortunes return. In this particular passage in verse number 17, it, it's talking about let us come between the porch and the altar and let us pray. You know, I will say this about the prayer that is happening and what God's Spirit is doing in the church, in our church specifically, that we are becoming a house of prayer. You say, Pastor, well, we're supposed to already be a house of prayer. It's always a work in progress, depending upon how we are all responding and how we are all praying. Look at the person next to you and say, yep, work in progress. (laughs) We will be a house of prayer. Any move of God, as we've been saying week after week, any move of God comes after somebody's knees have fallen upon the altar and begun to cry out unto the Lord, not just one prayer, not just one cry, but as way of, it's what our life becomes about. 
It's what we need for sustenance. It's what we need. We need another move of the Spirit of God, not in the, not in the context of through the church or through our city or through our nation. No, you, me, we need another move of the Spirit of God today. We need the Holy Spirit to come. And so we are becoming a house of prayer. Understanding that a, a house of prayer, as Jesus proclaimed, my Father's house shall be a house of prayer. He was speaking contradictory, contradictory to what was happening in the house of God. The selling, the marketing, the, the events of it all. But that the house of God needs to become and remain a house of prayer. And this is something that the people of God have to grab a hold of the horns of the altar to make happen. Joel says, come before the porch in the altar. And, and obviously it's giving us a picture once again of the, of the, the temple picture, but without going that direction today and focusing on what we are to do between the porch and the altar. He says, let the priest and the ministers of the Lord weep and cry out unto the Lord. There is a weeping that happens in the hearts and the lives of the priests and the ministers of God. Understanding we're not talking about guys that are wearing robes. We're talking about the church. We're talking about us here today as priests of God. A calling forth for weeping at the altar. There's a, there is a time to weep. There is a time to joy. There is a time to stand in the gap. There is a time to weep for oneself, for one's own sins and backsliddenness. There is a time to, to regain the victory and be forgiven. Everybody say that with me. Say, be forgiven. You don't have to remain in a state of constant weeping. You can actually live in a state of being forgiven. But there's a time for weeping. There's a time when we backslid and there's a time where we've fallen from our of first love. There's a time where temptation has come and has got the best of us. There's a time for weeping, but when that season is over and we come back on the mountaintop, as it were, even though we're liking the valley some, it's good feed in the valley. I think I've mentioned that a few times in a few different settings. But even when we stop weeping for ourselves, the Word of God says, Weep for the people. Spare the people. You see, there's a time to be crying out and weeping for the church. For our church. For the church. There's a time to come and, and to be crying out to the Lord to restore the heritage of the Lord in our lives. In verse 17, it says, O oh Lord, make not your heritage a reproach. Meaning to say when people are looking at professing Christians' lives and they look and they say, well, that's not so great of heritage. 
Does anybody know what I'm talking about? I know it's treading a little bit. But he says, "There's, let us not make the heritage of the Lord a byword among the nations or a reproach among the people. Why should the people say, where is their God? Instead, the prophet cries out, restore. In Psalms 126 and verse 4, he says, where we started today before worship, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears, a time for sowing in tears, shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing sheaves with him. There's a time for weeping. If you have fallen away from Christ, if you've never known Jesus as your Lord and Savior, there's a time for weeping. The time would be now, the time would be today to come weeping before the Lord, to come bearing, rending one's heart instead of one's garments, not just, not just ripping sackcloth and ashes, but, but this is a even all the way back in the book of Joel, it was a heart matter. It was a matter of how was your heart towards the Lord today? How is your heart towards worshiping Jesus today? How is your heart consecrated? Consecrate the assembly. How is our hearts set aside for Jesus today? There's a time for weeping, but as in Psalms 126 clearly says, there's a time when the weeping is turned to shouts of joy. The Nagab is an interesting, it's an interesting picture that the prophet or the psalmist speaks to us today because the Nagab is, is obviously in this region. And if you've ever seen pictures or visited the region of much of the Word of God, the Holy Land, it's a region of just dust and, you know, desert and, you know, water is, is precious not like Louisiana where you get a little bit too much of it, <laughs> right? But the Negev, and it talks about return our fortunes, O Lord, like the streams of the Negev. And it's this collection of basins that are collecting water and streams in the Judean desert. And the picture that we get here when the, that the psalmist is drawing for us with streams in the Negev is when the rain does fall in the mountains of Negev, the water begins to flow in all these little, as it were, smaller streams. I mean, it starts off just tiny. Hundreds of them. Streams here, streams there, but just tiny, tiny streams that begin to collect the blessing and the provision. In the Negev, all the streams of the Negev start to run down and all these hundreds of little veins, maybe we could call them, they are slowly starting to collide to where next thing you know, these little millimeter size, like some drops of rain fall between the cracks in the mountain here and, and makes its way down a stream that becomes a little larger to next thing you know, you get down to the bottom and these, these once very small streams are 
hundred meters wide. Very big streams. It gives us a picture like the streams in the Negev, restoring the fortunes unto the Lord, that the blessings in the restoration of God, it, it starts off so small in our life. It starts off to where it starts collecting and collecting. And and as we as a people continue to return to the Lord. You see, there's a lot of misconception that you can just just grab a hold of the, the blessing of the grace of salvation and walk away. And you just got access to it all. There'd be no need to call the people of God between the porch and the altar to weep for the people of God. And weep for ourselves. The streams that begin so small begin to grow in strength. Those who sowed in tears and, as it says, begin to reap with joy. The sowers take every little, tiny, precious seed and place it into the ground. You see, this water that's flowing down, it's, it's the water of God that one man plants, one man waters, but God brings the increase. Every seed that you sow is precious. The seeds of our prayers. We sow, if you start to envision your prayers as, as sowing these, these prayers in tears. Obviously, we, we know when we sow our seed and, and that which the Lord has provided in our life, we sow it. That's very precious. We sow it in times with tears. It says that the sowers put each tiny, precious seed into the ground, not knowing whether or not there would be a harvest. And if the blessing of the harvest does come, each seed will have multiplied itself dozens of times, like the tiny little streams that are flowing down from the Negev that together become rushing streams. That together become rushing streams. There is a building. You see, the Lord, the Lord wants us to come first. You've got to come. You've got to come to Him. He wants each one of us to come to Him. You know, think about it. When we want, all of us want the restoration of fortunes. We all want the the culmination of the streams of the Negev that all of a sudden these big rushing, as it were, like rivers more than streams. We all want that in our life. But we need to come to the Lord as He's crying for us to do so. Ministers, priests of the Lord, come before the porch and the altar. Come with our hearts rent before Him. I mean, in the silliest silliest example, you know, somebody who's living in your house and living with you. Let me ask you, how many of you have had people living in your house before that were not immediate family. Raise your hand. Not immediate. That's, that's always fun, right? <laughs> don't say it. They're like in, in, in here right now. Don't just. 
No, it's awesome. It's not, yeah, it's fun, Pastor, in the best sense. It's always easier when you're living in the house to be able to access the blessings that are in the house. When you're a guest in the house, you're there for a day or two, you're probably not as likely to go and just like charge the refrigerator. Now, grandma's house, it didn't matter if you lived there or not, you still didn't charge the refrigerator, right? (laughs) Grandma had, my grandma had a refrigerator rule. That's, That's one of the things I remember my grandma, she had a refrigerator rule. I don't have a refrigerator rule. I have a really embarrassing story about a refrigerator story, about being a guest in the house. There was a time, strangely enough, mom, aunt, uncle, all here for the story, but there was a time in my life when I was homeless, and it wasn't for very long. I was 17 years old, and mama had enough of me, and um, no, I was living in Charlotte. Daddy had enough of me, and 17 years old, and I was hopping around from friend's house to friend's house as best I could. And I'll never forget, I'll never forget, and I can't remember exactly how long it was, but I'd go to Jeff's house, and then I'd go to whatever the other guy's name. There's maybe three houses that I I could, four houses that I, I really managed to wiggle my way into the most. And as a 17 year old, I was always hungry, right? Like your 17 year old boys. But I was so embarrassed, and I was so ashamed of where I was at in my life. And we would sit down at dinner, or they would give me a little bit of food to eat in the evenings, and everybody would go to sleep, and I would just lay a lot of times on the couch or wherever I was finding to sleep, and I'd just lay there until, and I'd lay there until about midnight oftentimes, and I would just wait for the whole house to be asleep. (laughs) You know where I'm going with this. I would, I'm telling you, I, I, don't, I didn't have to set an alarm. I would just lay there, and I'd wait till my, my, obviously the parents were asleep. I'd wait for my buddies to be asleep, and then I would literally. I would literally, on tippy toes, walk to the refrigerator every night, and I'd hold it. Because you never realize how squeaky refrigerators are in the middle of the night until you don't want anybody to hear it. And I'd open that thing so slowly. And every night, about midnight, 1 o'clock, I'd go and they had to know it. Because I would just eat. I mean, I would, I would eat. I would try not to eat like so that it was completely noticeable. But I would eat, and I'd make sure that I ate until my belly was full. I'd already lost. I mean, I got down to, I mean, I went down from 180 pounds to 155 pounds. I was skin and bones, and that's just how I survived as being a guest in somebody else's house. And that's not how the Lord wants his people to live. That's not how the people of God have to live. There is abundance in the refrigerator. 
especially if you live like in a household like mine, there better be an abundance in the refrigerator, you know? No, not always. But there is an abundance in God's house. But, but we as the people, think about it. We will be so much more confident. We will have so much more faith. We will have so much more you know, access when we are a people who are living in God's house, His presence, walking with Him every day. We've got to live with Him. Are you hearing me today? Are you hearing me? It's not just, you're not a guest that just coming in and sort of just coming in for a minute and having to sneak to the refrigerator. You're a child of God. And when the prophet's praying, restore the fortunes of your people, he's talking about us. He's talking about the things that we've lost. Not silver and gold or USD or RMB or whatever currency. He's talking about the precious things that we've lost. Closeness, nearness, access, power, provision from the hand of God himself. You see, there are effects in our life when we are a people who live between the porch and the altar. We're talking about becoming a house of prayer. We're talking about becoming a people of prayer between the porch and the altar, weeping at times, shouting for joy at times, worshiping at all times. In Romans chapter 13, verses 11 through 14. Besides this, and I want you to listen closely. This is talking to the people of God. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you. For you, for you. Look at the person next to you and say, for you. Some of you may be literally. To wake. I'm sorry, did I just slip that in there? To wake from sleep. You know what, if anybody sleeps in church, anybody sleeps in church, don't worry, it's my fault. If anybody sleeps in church, it's, it's the preacher's fault. We always say the leader's, the leader's responsible, right? So if you can sleep through my preaching, well, then my preaching needs to get better. All right, moving, moving right along. You've never heard that one before. All right, going on from there. For, for, sleep, somebody say sleep. For salvation, listen to this. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. We're talking about people who've already believed in this passage. Waking up from sleep to those who have already believed. Salvation. I, I just parrot, there we go, parrot the word of God and say to all of us today that salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So let us cast off 
works of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. You know, coming between the porch and the altar, coming into times of prayer and seeking the Lord, I mean, one of the things that it does above all else is the latter portion of this passage here where it says, make no provision for the flesh. When you come in into a time of seeking the Lord, you are immediately putting your flesh as secondary. When you're coming into a time of worship and and seeking God, you are immediately saying to your flesh that you are not going to have your way with me right now. Because the flesh at all times is, is warring, and we'll see that in a moment. But it's warring against this whole idea of coming between the porch and the altar with this, with this weeping unto the Lord, with shouts of joy unto the Lord. The, the writer and Paul here is saying to the church, it's time to wake up once again. Even when you have believed and you've started this walk with Christ and you've started this journey, there seems to be this, these occurrences where the people of God and the church of God can be lullabied to sleep. We're not talking about physically inside of a service. Lullaby to sleep. Arthur Wallace, that we started last week with just a couple quotes, he says, The church of sleep is not only deluded of power, but also of holiness. Might actually be able to put that the other way around, that, that without holiness, then there's no power. And so there's this, there's this constant call and this constant cry to, to wake up once again. To wake up to the cry of the Lord. Holiness is not optional. Holiness is not optional because without it, no one will see God. There is a holiness that comes when Christ comes into our life and our sins are forgiven and we're covered by the blood of Christ. And then there's this sanctification. There's this sanctification that just continues to increase in the man and woman of God's life that is seeking the Lord with all their heart. As it says in Joel chapter 2 verse 12 where we started, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. Not a portion of it. If we were all to stand up and we were all to be somewhat honest, you know, we would all have confessions to make. 
about holding back some of our, some of our, whether it's time or some of our life or maybe even some of our heart. Maybe we've been hurt. Maybe we've just been totally blessed. We've been distracted. It can go both ways. It can cut both ways continually. The church needs to get on mission. An awakened church is a church that gets awakened to its mission. The mission of the church doesn't change. It doesn't, it doesn't change from one generation to the next, from one technological age to the next. The mission of the church remains the same, and, and one aspect of it is holiness, to live and to walk in holiness, but, but another aspect of it, which the two go hand in hand, is to be a people. The mission of the church is the will of God for the church. If you want to know what the mission of the house of God is, you want to know what the mission of each one of our lives, well, you go and you search the word of God for what is God's will for his people. The mission of the church is the will of God. 1 John chapter 2, verse 17 said, The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The whole, the whole point here is abiding forever with Christ. That's the whole, that's the entirety of the whole. Abiding together with Christ. The world with its desires is, is slowly just getting captivated and slowly the, the gap grows bigger. It's passing away. It's something that we're supposed to be able to clearly see. Something that we'll be able to clearly identify. But the man and woman of God who is on mission is the man and woman of God who is every day they're waking up seeking God's will for their life. To be obedient and to walk in the will of God today. In 1 Peter chapter 2, 15 through 17, it says, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God, honoring everyone, loving the brotherhood, fearing God, and yes, even honoring the president, I mean the emperor. It was very quiet for that one, not even a, not even a giggle. That one was really hard, Pastor. Putting on the armor of light, engaging in the war that is being waged against our souls, that's being waged against our eternity. That which has lulled the people of God asleep, being removed so that the battle cry can once again resound from the house of God and the people of God. 
The battle cry is that, is that cry that comes between the porch and the altar. The battle cry is one that's calling upon the name of God. In ancient warfare, you know, there's, it, it was many things. But one thing, it was not quiet. And he says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, that I beseech you as sojourners and pilgrims, people who are just passing through, to abstain from fleshly lusts that war against your soul. Part of the wakening up, part of this whole process of coming alive and getting on mission and, and being a people who are about the will of God every single day of our life is a people who are, we're once again, we're engaging in the battle. We're engaging in the, the war that's being waged against our children and our churches and our, our faith. It's the effects this is the effects of being a people who come between the porch and the altar on a regular basis, just coming to that place of prayer. Seeking the Lord humbly, and we're going to try to wrap this up. Didn't even get to Harley Zephaniah. We'll get there eventually. Keep trying every week, and other stuff just keeps coming. But we'll get to one, one, three scriptures, two scriptures, three, three scriptures in Zephaniah right now. Four, no, three, don't say four. Zephaniah chapter two, verse three, and we'll kind of conclude with these couple scriptures in talking about this awakening church and this church on mission and this church Pursuing the will of God. In Zephaniah 2 verse 3 it says, Seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth. Or you could say all you humble of the earth. Who have upheld his justice. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. You see, only, we're going to make this really simple. Only the humble man and woman can truly seek the Lord. Only the humble. Anybody of a proud, Heart, and not to say that we all aren't dealing with some level of pride as we live and journey in this flesh. But the humble man or woman of God are the ones that seek God. Any person out there, whether within or without, that refuses to seek the Lord has a proud heart towards Christ. You see, humility is not something that just happens in our life. Because in every situation, even when the context 
presented to you gives you an option for humility. There's always an option for pride. In the most belittling situations, the most traumatic situations, every man and woman can always choose to go the proud route. And that's where the scriptures tell us in just a revealing sort of fashion. Go see it in Zephaniah. In chapter 2, verse 3. Seek humility. Humility is something that we are actually looking for. In every situation in our life, we're looking for how do we insert the humility that we have seen displayed for us through Christ? How do we insert humility into this situation in my life? Not happy. Not happy. Good works in one area of our life does not compensate for the lack of seeking the Lord and seeking humility for other areas of our life. The humble heart is going to seek the humble route in all avenues of our life. And until the man or woman of God makes that decision to lay their pride down, and let me just trust me when I say, even when you lay it down, it's not going to disappear. But to lay their pride down and begin to seek humility, until that, we will have a hard time finding the Lord we will have a hard time individually finding Christ. The last passage and just a little, little tidbits from Zephaniah in chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, talking about the prideful individual. It says, Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled. The oppressing city. Here's, the, here's some description of pride. Listens to no voice. Accepts no correction. Does not trust in the Lord. And does not draw near to God. We're going to be a people who are going to insert our lives between the porch in the altar today a bit that's a bit symbolic for us as the new testament church today simply meaning that we're going to be a people who are going to commit ourselves to being a people who are seeking the lord to be a people who are prayer to be a people who are trying to get on mission to be a people who are doing the will of god we're seeking the will of god to be a humble people that even when we fail we're just continuing to fail forward if that 
is who we can be before the Lord. We will find ourselves at that porch and altar with those streams of the Negev, with the fortunes. You go on in Joel and it talks about the restoration of what the years that the locusts have eaten. We love to quote that. The restoration of all the years that the locust has eaten, the years that we've lost something, the years of not necessarily that it was taken from it, it from us, it could even apply to the years that we backslidden and we lost it. The years that the locust have eaten, the restoration of what the locusts have destroyed comes into our life by way of being a resident. In the presence of God. Being not that little 17-year-old boy sneaking to the refrigerator because I had no right doing so. But being a people who live there in His presence. With all the confidence. With all the assurance. That all of the heritage of the Lord. is for me. In Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and stand to your feet if you would. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. We're just going to pray and dismiss. If you'd like to stay and worship for a moment, you can. We've got a lot going on today with lunch and outreach and everything. But just open up your hearts as we just close. And thank you, Jesus. Glory to your name, Lord. Lord, we just thank you today, God. Lord, I just, I pray in the mighty name of Jesus that the hearts of your people are stirred today, Lord. That there is a returning of the Lord in each of our hearts, God. There is a returning with prayers and there's a returning with weeping, Lord. There's a returning with fastings, Lord. There's a returning to holiness, Lord. There's a returning to seeking your will and your way, Lord. That there is a, a, a mass returning underway, Lord. Here in this house, within the body of Christ, we say, Jesus, have your way, Lord. Have your way. And Lord, we give you all the glory.